Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed Bryce Holdaway and Ben Kingsley, uh, who are very well known for their podcast to be on, on the property couch, and author of the two books, The Armchair Guide to Property and uh, Make Money Simple Again. So they're huge on property investing, but also in personal finance. Yeah, very much so. So we talked a, a lot about how can we take control of our finances. Being the start of a new year, I'm sure many people want to take control of their finances this year. So get your expenses in check. Start consciously spending on things you want to be spending on. That's some of the stuff we talked about with the legends from the property couch. Absolutely. Some great content. They're actually legends, man, both of them uh, on air and off air. Uh, I really think everybody's going to get a lot of out of this, especially if some of your New Year's goals are around uh, saving up a bit of money and looking to invest in, in the future. And if you want to grab a free chapter of their book, Make Money Simple Again, you can check out the link in our show notes where we'll link directly to where you can read that free chapter. So, gents, what are the biggest issues with personal money management? Well, organising your money. People don't know how to trap it. That's it. <laughs> mm. So... The trapping comes after, but if you think about it, most people have problems in organising their money, so they need to bucket it, or in our case, we talk about jars. So, you know, our grandparents did it easy because they didn't have it, they didn't spend it. We're tempted by debt and, you know, payday, credit and all this sort of other crap that goes on, but if you can actually organise your money into different buckets, then that you're halfway home, and if your rule's based around that, that's the solution. It seems to be getting more and more complex. It's say more and more options and different types of cards, different types of loans, and you know you can buy it now and pay later. And it just seems to be getting more and more complex. So I can understand why people are getting lost. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, hence the reason for the book, right? Because we call it "Make Money Simple Again," and the the idea is that um, you know your grandparents used to have really basic money management, as Ben sort of hinted there, and can actually uh, you can still have that in the twenty first century, albeit you've got to be able to. Um, blend in with the you know electronic no one really uh, handles cash anymore but the same principles apply so we wanted to and we've been doing it for many years within our business with thousands of clients that have implemented the money smart system so but the idea is you know 33 billion dollars plus worth of credit card debt means that something has gone wrong systemically in in the uh, the system so if we can if we can help people implement our grandparents system today so that they can manage their money. We, we feel that they can be in better control of their money and hopefully trap a bit more, and, but, but hopefully um, not spend more than they earn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> a As a starting point, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of, a lot of debt. And I, you know, we're in Australia, we do pretty well, I'd say, compared to most of the world, but it seems to be that, uh, as you say, trapping, it's an important part because everyone gets a lot of money and also spends a, even more money in most cases. Yeah, I think the temptation today is greater than ever before. Um, We've just got to remember it's not your money. Mm -hmm. If if people can understand that. Now, we're the same. I mean, obviously, we we teach people how to leverage into property investment. That's the main thing that we do to create wealth. But ultimately, the money that you're trapping in your primary account, be it offset, albeit um, high interest savings account, um, in a lot of cases, if you've got other debt there, just treat it as not your money. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you'll be a bit more precious with it because that's the biggest problem most people have. They say, that, that $5,000 on that credit card, that's mine. No, it's not. It's the bank's yeah. money. You just have the privilege of using it and it's going to come at a cost to you. Mm. I think for me, one of the biggest issues, when, when I was at university, I was thinking, all right, when I start earning some money, you know, when I'm on you know, starting salary or 60, 70 grand, you're thinking, oh, I'm going to save 20 or 30 of that. You hit it, 
all of a sudden your expenses just reach that, get your first pay rise, and it's just never-ending. And it's and that's something that I found really difficult. Um, so what do you boys suggest? for? for it's like it's called the financial cup, right? So your cup um, t- tends to move in proportion to your income. But the, the way that, that we propose is that if you, if you follow this system, if your income increases, it doesn't necessarily mean an automatic increase in your expenses. In fact, it actually just means more and more surplus. Mm. Um, but that's, that's the lifestyle creep, right? So you, you think that... You think that when you get there, your lifestyle won't creep at all. But that's, um, you know, we, we had a, a guest on our um, podcast, uh, Paul Clitheroe, and he talked about driving the car that your ego mm. will let you get away with. And I think the challenge is when, when you get more income, your ego starts to want a bit more. Um, and whether it's a house, whether it's a car, whether it's the red wine you drink in the restaurants you go to. So if you can keep that, if you can keep in mind, if you, that cup doesn't necessarily have to grow with your income, that's how you can uh, mm. get more money in your pocket. Yeah, I think it's like the idea of, uh, as you say, lifestyle creep or head-on adaptation or the book The Richest Man in Babylon says that, you know, when you make more money, then your necessary expenses, in quotation, seem to go up as well. You think that, okay, maybe I can, rather than going out once a week, I've got a bit more money, maybe I have to go out twice a week because that's now a necessary expense when really it's, it's really not, is it? Wants and needs. Yeah. Wants never increase in terms of essential... Sorry, needs never increase, what I'm saying. They never increase, right? Mm. So ultimately, we have a basic means to feed the fuel into the system, which is keeping us alive and keeping us warm so we don't die, you mm. know, or overheat. So, you know, shelter, all the basic needs are there. The wants change. Mm. The wants are there, well, okay, now that I'm in this society, I, I, okay, I need to be doing more things and I, those things are aspirational and, and that's what people fall into. So, you know, we've... We're, we're privileged to be able to sit in front of lots and lots of people in the work that we do. And I've seen um, families with five children smash it. Mm-hmm. I, and, I'm, and I'm talking about living off, when I say smash it, they're living off about $30,000 a year as a family of seven. And I just go, I'm not worthy. How are you doing that? <laughs> yeah. And a lot of it is, you know, yeah, they're, pr- they're producing from raw materials like flour. They produce their own breads. They make their own food. Everything's done. Everything's bought in bulk. They're really organised, right? Um, and that, whereas I've seen you know couples on household income of triple that, mm. um, who can't can't basically make ends meet, and it's just just wrong. It's right. It's just wants versus needs. Yeah, absolutely. One of the big tips you got in the book is the use of, of jars. Uh, if you could just talk about how you can allocate your money to jars and why that might help. Um, you know, tracking surplus money at the end of the month, like you say. Yeah, well, it, it, it comes from the idea that your grandparents used to use the flour jar, right? So uh, your granddad um, typically back then would uh, get his yellow pay packet, you know, on a Thursday or Friday, rip it open, and they'd allocate money to the jars. Whereas now in the 21st century, we talk about the virtual jars because everything we want you to have it trapped into uh, one account, which is your primary account. For us, if you've got a, if you've got loans, it's a it's an offset account. And then within that, you've got to imagine that you've got virtual jars, so money that goes out for the credit card or money that goes out for the loan payments. You can set those things up so they automatically come out um, to pay off your commitments as and when they fall due. But ultimately, you're putting it into these virtual jars. And the ultimate one is then you have um, what we call a seven-day float, which is goes into a debit uh, account. And that's really... The, the active management of your money because everything else is, is automatic. Yeah, well, I think what we need to remember is this system works on a 12-month basis. Okay, so we have our expense items, so our, our different sort of line items of things that we spend on groceries, um, you know, dining and takeaway, you know, all those types of things. So you've got to work those out. 
then you know, we said at the start of the show, organize them, right? So you organize the ones that you know are gonna be routine and regular into your living and lifestyle. Then you've got your bills, and effectively then you've also got your, your provisioning accounts, which is your ad hoc stuff. Now the, the ad hoc stuff in its very nature means you have to track it, right? Mm-hmm. But when, what a lot of, why these budget sort of systems don't work is because they just do line item and they just track everything, but what are you mm-hmm. ultimately going goal? for? Mm-hmm. So if you think about it logically, over a 12 month period, so you reverse engineer it, I wanna track $15,000 of my money coming in and how do I do that? So I just need to work out what I've got flowing in, make decisions on what's essential and discretionary, mm-hmm. wants versus needs, organize them into their jars, and then effectively what, what's so powerful about that, which is what Bryce was saying before, is when you get that seven-day float, then your focus and your attention and behavior is about just making sure that that, whether it be a single person on 220, households $250, that, that money has to make it, right? You know, so $450 for a household, I should say, I've got a budget to that. I've got to make that money last. So I do my grocery shopping first, and then I do all my discretionary in around that. That'll keep me alive. Mm. And, and then it's a conscience position in terms mm. of whether you want to spend or overspend, as opposed to, so it's a system. Because the misunderstanding of the seven-day float is the enemy of everyone's budget, right? Because when's the last time you accidentally brought home a plasma TV or you accidentally uh, you know, bought yourself a $4,000 holiday? It doesn't happen, right? They're planned expenditure. Where most people's um, money management goes south is $17 here, $23 there, and they can't even remember what it was mm-hmm. five days later. But that's... That starts to accumulate, that starts to add up, and that's where the budget blows out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it. So one extreme that a lot of people are probably doing is they get paid, and then they think, I'll just spend this and spend it. There's no planning around it. The other extreme is, as you say, the extreme budget, whereas this is probably a good middle ground of, you know, a way to keep a track of what can you actually spend, how much is actually left, rather than just, you know, letting it go for it. And it's important, that idea of consciously spending. Yeah, look, I mean, you think about it, there's... Tech is infiltrated this area, and it's only going to get better, right? So this is probably a problem for this generation and not, not further than this. I think in terms of AI and machine learning and chatbots and all that, you know, in 10 or 15 years, we won't be talking about this because it'll all be done for us in our private banker, you know, an online virtual private banker, right? But what we're going to see, um, we see things like Acorn as a good example where they, they round up to the nearest dollar, right? So that's, that's a forced savings. They don't get to see it. It's automated. But we're not talking about cents here. We're talking about dollars. So you can run an Acorn system here and you can potentially trap 1% of your overall turn. Not even that, right? But if you, if you do this from a monetary point of view and it's $20 here, $15 there, the acceleration is astronomical in terms of getting into a routine and changing behaviour to trap more surplus. Yeah. And when you get uh, conscious of what you're actually spending it on, you might find out, oh, shit, I don't actually like clothes so much you know even though you're spending you might find out how much you're actually spending on it so being conscious first you can actually direct it on the things you actually that give you value in your life yeah it gives you some joy it's interesting we, we interviewed um some people uh that had implemented the money smart system there was one guy in particular um and he it was like his vision opened up and the fact that they had a track to run on they knew where they were going the, the husband and wife were both on the same page just gave him this just unbelievable focus and really gave him that, um, that, that not, not wanting to go and chase all those temporary highs because they knew where they headed and they knew what the vision was. Whereas in the absence of that, you're right, get your money. And as long as you have 
$5 or more in your bank account at the end of the month, you think it's a success, uh, successful month because you didn't run out of money, and you go, oh, well, I'll try and do better next yeah. month. And it just keeps on, you know, history repeating itself. So what if uh, <laughs> someone's listening and they've, they've heard us, we talked about the problem at the start, and we've given a bit of a taste of what the solution is, and they're thinking, I really don't have a system here, I really don't have a plan. What's some of the first steps they should be taking to, you know, a couple of easy wins at first? Well, we're sort of, in the book, we talk about seven steps. Okay, so we're even trying to dumb it down in terms of, so there's three sort of actions, ready, set, go, but inside those, there's seven steps. So the first thing you obviously do is you've got to, how much am I spending? Where's it all going? So we call that the gather step, right? Then effectively, we want to sort that out. So we, you know, we're talking about categorising your money. That's how we sort it out. Then we calculate. Then we set up the banking system, right? So there's your first four steps, right? Now, you haven't really got off, you're still on the runway, right? You haven't launched yet. Um, then it's a, a matter of, okay, well, now I've done, I've calculated that over a 12-month period. I've divided that into monthly um, targets that I can then go and set to. So then we've got, basically, we want to check in each month, and then we, you know, tweak and roll over. So it's really, if you think about it, it it's a framework that's really simple to understand, um, and that will get them to understand what they need to do in terms of getting set up and then implementing the system. But it's even even if you were to implement only the banking stage, right, and forget everything else, which we don't recommend you do, obviously, to get the best benefit. But even just to implement the banking setup would transform. I would challenge if it wouldn't transform anyone's um, f- uh, financial uh, lifestyle. It's just it's transformational because it keeps it really simple. And what, you got a whole bunch of different case studies with people with different financial goals. So, what are your favourite case studies in there from people who've uh, you know been really impacted by the advice that you have in these, this book? Uh, well, it's interesting. We, we uh, recently chatted to someone who got themselves out of one hundred and twenty thousand dollars worth of debt, wow. and uh, within eighteen months got themselves into two hundred thousand dollars worth of surplus. Right? That's Jeez. that's pretty good. Mm. But that was just pretty like, good. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. That was an amazing <laughs> focus on um, making every dollar count, getting back to the basics, and so I, I really enjoy seeing people pull themselves out of hardship. Um, but clearly, we, we run a business that's helping people leverage, you know, trap mm. and leverage what they've trapped. So if people, you know, because you've really got two choices. If, if, I, can, if I can trap some surplus um, at the end of the month, I've really got two choices, haven't I? I can spend it on lifestyle or I can spend it on tomorrow. Mm. And so we get a lot of, you know, joy out of helping people leverage that, build, build a, a wealthier tomorrow so they've got really good choices down the track. Mm. There's two principles going on here. One is the principle of just getting in control of your money. And that's where most Australians need the most amount of help. I mean, it's pretty clear in terms of levels of household debt um, and also um, making, making sure that, you know, money plays with the state of mind. You know, there's that great saying, you know, your, your state of your wallet plays with your state of your mind. And I think if people aren't getting ahead, um, and especially millennials these days who, you know, unfortunately their runway for a deposit on a home is more challenging than others in terms of housing affordability, in real terms, it's not significantly bigger, but it's that deposit piece that is the, the biggest piece. So, you know, I particularly like the stories around um, trapping that surplus and, and fast-tracking your deposit uh, because I know that if you can get one asset, one property in your in your overall wealth base, you're going to be well-served into the future. And the smarter millennials are foregoing a little bit of joy and activity to put that money in and, you know, so... It's funny, in our business, we, we don't get those millennials who are sitting back saying it's really hard. 
we get the millennials who are saying, let's do this. Mm. And they come into the business and they're like, right, great, I've already got $30,000 saved, I want to get my first property. And in some cases, it might be an investment property before they go on the, on the journey. And they're realistic also. It's, they're, they're interested in getting on the property ladder, they're not interested in getting to the top of the ladder straight mm. away. Mm. And I think that's a really important point. Absolutely. So uh, trapping surplus, it seems to be an equation of, you know, one side you've got controlling your expenses, but the other side is actually growing your income so you can got more surplus in the first place. So from a macro point of view, what's happening with wage growth in Australia? Um, you might want to comment on that, but also from the personal level, what can they do actually to improve their income in the first place? Well, I think there's, there's definitely challenges with wage growth. And, and unfortunately, in this innovation age, um, that's going to be challenged globally, all right? So um, you're seeing a lot more efficiency come into the system and a lot more automation come into the world. And with automation, um, it means that some of the tasks that humans have to perform are, are going to be less and less. So if that is the case, you're going to see businesses turn towards some of that automation and robotics and those types of things. So it's really challenging, right, in terms of more globally speaking. So if you're not a trained specialist or educated in some of the STEM things, your future growth of income is going to be challenged. So, you know, um, if you're going to be a labourer and not educate yourself, you could be a victim of a changing society. So I would always say if you're, if you're focused in on coding um, and also, you know, your science, your technology, your engineering and your math, that's going to be a really important part of what that looks like. Um, coming back to what can you do about it, well, it is about getting educated and and making sure that you're looking at some of those areas where there's opportunity to develop. Because the challenge is Australia has this wonderful lifestyle, right? But it's mm. actually the challenge that um, to afford that comfortable lifestyle, you need a little bit more money to do that, right? Whereas as you as we've got boundaries no more globally, there's other people who can make a significant change to their lifestyle at a much lower cost base. So that's that's always going to be the challenge of living in Australia or living in America or living in a in a, a, a culture or a community where you, you just have a wonderful standard of living. Um, mm. Wage growth is going to be a challenge. Yeah. Mm. Awesome. I and mean, if we bring it into the household, yeah. just quickly, there's lots you can do around conscious and unconscious spending, right? So I think from that point of view, it, it is about needs versus wants. So we, we talk about, again, essential and discretionary. So even when you're going grocery shopping, everyone thinks, well, groceries, that's all essential. No, it's not. You know, you can have a choice about some of the discretionary. That could be ice cream. That could be confectionery. It could be whatever. That's a, that's a conscious choice that you're making. So I think, you know, you're in control of that and you, you should be able to make some of those changes. And same sort of thing, business shirts. Is a $120 business shirt just as good as a $49 business shirt? I mean, I'm, I don't know. Um, and if you know, and I mind you, I'm no fashion geek or guru. Come on, right? <laughs> that's you know, the, probably the shirt I'm wearing now is probably a forty-nine dollar shirt, not a hundred and forty-nine dollar shirt. <laughs> so there we go. So there's little things like that, and I do know, you know, I do have an expensive shirt, one in the in the cupboard yeah. or whatever. But and I do know that the quality does feel different. But does this shirt still form a function that I need it to? Yep, it means that I've, I've, I'm clothed, so the old people in the office aren't screaming about my back hair. You know, they are important things <laughs> in terms of what that looks like. So I'm doing the right thing in terms of coming here to work, but I don't have to do it in, you know, a $1,000 suit. Yeah, love yeah. it. I think with uh, millennials, when I say millennials, I really mean myself. You know, it's pretty easy to, you know, the brunch is on the weekend and the Uber Eats is uh, just a couple of clicks away. 
I don't know if it's just his convenience and it's just so much easier to spend money and tap and go and uh, I don't know, are we getting sort of trapped by the all this convenience that's that's coming to the world? Well, you've got to have a choice between what you want. Do you want lifestyle or do you want real estate? That's mm. that's what it comes down to. Do you want a house to live in or do you want to enjoy you know the stereotypical smashed avocado? Um, because if you go back to any generation, even though it's tough for a millennial to raise a deposit, go back to any generation and the same stories. It was tough mm. and we had to sacrifice and we had to make some focused decisions on whether we wanted that or lifestyle. It was just back then... Like you remember when you, I don't know if you remember when you got your first credit card, but when I got mine, um, the idea of having a balance left on it at the end of the month was just hard to comprehend. It, it just, it seemed dangerous. It seemed like it was a taboo. Whereas now people left, right and centre have credit card balances at the end mm. of the month on their credit card. So we have disconnected a little bit to the um, the fact that a long time ago we'd pay cash for everything and now we quite happily, you know, it's almost a badge of honour. How much credit card debt have you got? Oh, I've only got, only got a thousand less than you know on the front, but everyone's just got accepted that they got credit card debt, right? So, but the point being, if you go back to any generation, my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation, they found it hard to get their first property. So, but it does mm. come down to what do you want? Do you want lifestyle, or do you want a, a roof over your head? And, and there's no doubt that cashless money um, makes it easier. Mm. You don't you don't see it. Mm. It's just a digit on a screen, right? So there's no. There's no hard feeling of money, and they do it that way. It's intentional. Mm. We do know that the research shows that the behaviour around spending money on plastic versus spending physical money changes your mindset. You actually spend more on plastic. I mean, my dad used to give me 20 cents to walk up the shops and get him a newspaper. I used to hand over a coin, and then I'd have to part with my coin to get my mixed bag of lollies, right? So there was an emotional disconnection from letting go of that money. You don't have that with a credit Mm. card. You're just like, I'll tap today, I'll worry about it at the end of the month. And then by the time the end of the month comes, you are so far removed from that purchase emotion that it just, just, just becomes lost. Mm. So uh, you boys obviously help people buy property and eventually get to the point where they've got passive income to fund whatever lifestyle they're after. Um, being a, a millennial and not owning property, I'm probably really got some kind of uh, bias towards seeing some of the negative news in property, right? So feel free to knock me out of the park. No, no, no. <laughs> so not owning property, like... The reason I personally might be a little bit sceptical sometimes is that there was such growth in capital growth for you know my mum and uh, they, their generation. I'd like to know, do you think that our generation will get the same similar capital growth of you know seven to ten percent or whatever you guys think is possible? Well, I think we get our crystal ball out and we do say that you know if we re- if we remain relatively capitalist in the way in which we organise our you know, politics and now society, then the chances are that depending on where you buy, there'll, be, there'll, there'll forever be a differential in property prices in different locations. Okay, so things like scarce land, um, hard fought after in high demand will appreciate quite successfully over the course of the next two or three or four generations. Because if you think about, you know, we, we do some rough sort of numbers. Let's say we've got a, a, a thousand people, right? Now, everyone on that scale is going to earn different amounts of money for the skills that they provide, right? But the reality is, is that population is going to keep growing. But in terms of the opportunity for good quality property in good quality locations, is that there'll be more and more people fighting for those types of properties. So that is no different in any generation mm. through any decades or whatever. Um, in terms of because of human interest and human behaviour, 
there will be surgeons who earn lots of money, there will be business entrepreneurs who earn lots of money. And so if they're fighting over four properties, but there's 20 or 30 of them, out of the thousand that is, there's still going to be competition on those particular properties. And so the scarcer they are, and the more status and owner-occupier appeal credentials that they give, along with the lifestyle and amenity around that, they will continue to grow. If you said to me, well, what about some of the suburbs or regional cities and so forth? I mean, you only need to look at the study of um, economic activity in certain uh, rural centres. If the train line diverted in the, you know, in the 1980s, those towns died, right? Because that was their lifeblood of economic activity. So you've got to also then start to say to yourself, in the bigger cities around the world, the knowledge centres where people come to have opportunity and to earn more money, are those centres going to be under strong competition for future activity and future uh, livability? You bet they are. Mm. And are those assets going to perform pretty well? Yeah. But the stuff out wide or in different areas which are subject to, um, you know, sort of one or two economic drivers, they probably would be challenged. Yeah. Great. Um, so one of the negative news around, and there's obviously a bit of negative press as well, so you can knock me out of the park again there, but what that, some people would say would be that um, people are in, in so much debt and this could be one of the biggest drivers for property. Um, you know, how much more debt can people take on going forward and uh, of your population growth story, um, you know, how much of a percentage of that will contribute to the fight, the same 7% to 10% growth? Um, and what else might you know bump it up to seven, ten, seven or ten percent, or do you think population alone will bump up the capital growth story to, to that amount? Well, we're on record as saying that uh, we don't think that the rising tide will lift all ships anymore, right? Yep. So because you've had a you've had a story in household incomes from the seventies where you've had this organic um, increase in cash flow, given that we've gone from one income to one and one and a half to two to two full time professionals. So. And then at the same time, uh, when you guys were born, we had the recession we had to have. So there was the um, interest rates that were, you know, 17% plus, right? So that's now at historical lows. So, but over time, you've just seen all you needed to do is put your name on a title. Like, the, all you needed to do is open the newspaper, close your eyes, put your finger down and say, buy that one, get mm. your name on a title and it would rise. So going forward, sort of on the back of what Ben was saying before, um, you have to be really good at picking um, where to buy. So... You know, people often ask us, um, how's the market going? Well, are you buying? Are you selling? Are you renting? Or how's Melbourne, we live in Melbourne, how's Melbourne going? Well, which part of Melbourne? Mm-hmm. And what type of property are you buying? And um, so, so we, would just, we would just say clearly that we see opportunities for growth in the future. Um, as Ben said, in the biggest cities around knowledge-based workforce. But uh, there'll be properties in Melbourne that do really rubbish. And at the same period of time, there'll be properties in, in Melbourne that do get that consistent growth over time. Yeah. So it's about it's about asset selection now more than ever. It's not just a case of putting your name on a title and hoping for it to go up in value. Come back to that example. Let's say we've got 1,000 people moving to a location, but we're all on the same income. Now, what that absolutely does is it limits the amount of borrowing that we have. So even if we wanted to compete on an asset, if we all tap out at $480,000 that asset can't appreciate $1 more, all right? But we don't live in a socialist society where everyone earns the same amount of income. So again, you just gotta look at the scale of incomes throughout that, that economy to work out whether there's gonna be price growth in certain areas or not. So we move 1,000 people into a new location and we all tap out at 480, and probably prices are sitting at 500 because we've gotta save a little bit. You'll get prices fluctuating between, say, 550 to 600 because people will put cash down as well, but that's it. 
So, but um, you know, that's what we're saying. Inside a inside a society of a thousand people, there might be, um, you know, twenty doctors, five lawyers, six accountants, um, uh, you know, thirty business owners who are all going to earn different types of income, and they're going to focus on the better assets. So, I think broadly speaking, um, it's crazy to think um, macro that you know because we're in the debt cycle that the whole thing is going to collapse on itself. Um, it just hasn't happened before, and it would need some type of catastrophic event for that to sort of roll out. Mm. I like it. I reckon they knocked you out of the park. Yeah, there. I reckon <laughs> they did. <right? laughs> That's gotcha. the thing. Like being a pessimist because you're leveraging money, right? If you're a pessimist and you don't get in, you know, yep. you look like a bit of an idiot. Hey, one, <laughs> one of the good things for you guys is because you have been dealt some challenging cards, right? You've had to pay for your education, right? So our gen- my parents' generation, we. We came out in '89 in high school, and or I came out in '89, and so so university we started to have to pay you know pay for our education, right? So that wasn't good. But our hex debts or our debts weren't oh, as big as what you yeah. guys are these days, right? So the the upshot is that Australia has never been a better better country to live in, right? In terms of standard living, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of things like that, we have got it pretty well here. And the other part of what the baby boomers did leave us is longevity. You know, they've increased their life expectancy by about a quarter of a century. So if I'm sitting here as a millennial and saying, this is nuts, you know, I'm really disappointed. Well, you guys can party hard during your 20s. You can start to think about in your, in your mid-30s about having kids and settling down. But guess what? You can still work your 40 years and then still have 10 years or 20 years of fun time in an active body that allow you to do the things that you've done. That has only been because of the brain's trust that led through from that education and what they've done. So the legacy they leave is that they probably cook the they probably cook the climate, which, which is not ideal. Um, and you know, if all of our old politicians could, as I said, they get just check in, boys, check out. Right, you're done. Yeah. Over sixty five, we don't want you in Parliament anymore. Yeah. Move on. You can't offer us anymore because you've got self interest, and that's what we're seeing right now. Right, we've got a baby boomers, the biggest our biggest pot of population are moving through, and there's a lot of voters there. But with that, you get silly television programs, you know, you know, for people who don't like change, you know, you've got commentators who don't do anything well for us. They're not helping any of us, right? But, but they're, they're talking to their audience who still reads the paper mm. and pays for the advertising, mm. right? And they still listen to those radio programs, which pays for the advertising. So there's a purpose in terms of why they're doing it. They're, they're manipulating the outcome. We want the younger generation to come through and basically turn the economy around that focuses on things like you know, getting back to the centre, which is fair for everyone as opposed to the extremes we have on both sides. I like it a lot, yeah. Um, there was a, a quote I heard on the, your, the Property Couch podcast along the lines of, you know, investing is just as much about personal development as it is uh, investing knowledge. I'll probably cook the last bit of there. But uh, in terms of personal development, what, sort of, what are your views on that and what do you guys do and what should sort of people be doing to, you know, grow themselves as, as well as their investment knowledge? Well, you guys have reviewed a book by um, Robert Kiyosaki on Rich Dad Poor Dad, and he, he talks in that book about um, risk being a measure of knowledge, right? So you and I could be faced with the same deal, and you could place a higher risk on it than me because I know exactly what's going Or let's flip that around, than you, right? So in something that's in your subject matter expertise, you know it inside out, so you consider it very low risk, whereas I'm coming to the coming to the um, to the deal very green, so I place a huge amount of risk on it, right? So, therefore, for me, two things. One, the more, the more you know, we sign off with, or Ben signs off with, knowledge is empowering, but only if you act on it. So knowledge is really important. Um, but also being able to change your mindset, because we live in Australia, 
It's a tall poppy syndrome. Mm. Um, not a lot of people want to put their neck out, particularly in this country. So if you actually do want to go down a path of financial freedom, um, you actually need to have a, a sharper mind and you need to be able to uh, understand that you will think, see and behave differently to the majority of people. So um, we put a really, really fine point on the fact that knowledge and wisdom are two really important things if you're investing. Mm. Yeah, and another thing he says in that book, which I really like, was, which is similar to what you guys say in, in this book and what we've been talking about, is that the two primary emotions that run our f- financial decisions are fear and greed. And the big thing about fear is we there's a lot of fear that we have, so we go out and work really hard to earn money because we, you know, scared we're not going to have anything at the end of the day. But then all of a sudden, greed kicks in, and we think about all the things money can buy and all our desire just controls all our decisions. So with that, we end up on just a wheel, money in, money out, and the way to get past it is to, just to get over your greed a little bit and use that surplus income to start push, pushing that toward assets. Um, to get income from assets rather than your job. And I think the other the side of the psychology of the investor on the greed side is overconfidence. Okay, so you have a couple of wins, you recycle that into more confidence, and when you recycle that, you get a bit greedier. Right? So, you know, a lot of the stock market players and all that, they can potentially think they're invincible and then they're wiped out, right? Now, they have an, they have an underlining burning desire to be better, um, and recover, and they reinvent themselves. But if you look at most people, um, they don't, you know, the people who have a good balance in life, and that's that's what Bryce was referring to before, we're our students of life, right? So we're walking a mile and we're seeing a mile and, you know, we're raising kids. We've got, both of us have got children under 10 years of age, so we're trying to be better parents. We're trying to understand the world. We're trying to support the people in the building that we support and the people who pay us for our advice. Also, you know, sort of... Uh, you know, we lie a better night knowing that we've got lots of obligations to lots of people. So if we're not educating, we're standing still. And if we're not looking at ways in which, um, you know, so some of the fundamentals don't change, but there are tweaks and there are different things that we look at and that gives us grounding in terms of the advice work that we do. So I think if you, if you look at it like that, you're going to be well served in terms of being able to have a fulfilling and happy life because money is not happiness. Mm. It's clear as day that it's not happiness. So you can have all the spoils and the riches in the world. If you don't have connection and if you don't find purpose in terms of the work that you've done to get you there, it's going to be pretty shallow and that's going to affect your mind and it's going to affect your health over time. Have you guys um, reviewed uh, Seven Habits of Highly mm. Yeah. So, you know, one Absolutely. of those habits yeah. sharpen the saw, right? It's there mm. for a reason. It's, um, you know, to bring new ideas, get some fresh thinking and um, hopefully solve some problems um, and, and help people... Uh, solve their problems by that you know change in perspective and change in paradigm that only comes from just keeping more good stuff coming into your mind. Mm-hmm. I like it a lot. Yeah, that was my number one book for a long time. Just recently got knocked off. Recently, actually, by, uh, oh, by? Well, the Laws of Human I'm... Nature by Robert Greene. Oh, just right. a brand newy. It's yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's next level. So Seven Habits is back to number two now. It's a, uh, it's yeah. a very dark book. <laughs> 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 you just kind of realise how stuffed up we are in the in the yeah. brain at times, right? Yeah, so yeah. The things you're scared of looking at kind of points it out and you'll be reading it and you know it'll talk about one type of character or whatever you'll know, be thinking oh that guy's pretty stuffed up that guy's pretty stuffed up and then it'll just describe you to a to a t <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> well emotional intelligence who, who wrote that book again i'm trying to remember right daniel goldman that's it, it and so i was like you know i was probably about 80 or 100 pages into that and i'm thinking this guy's on another level like <laughs> i had to reread a couple of chapters just to try and, and i probably attempted it 
a lot, it's been around for a long time now, but I, I reckon I tried to read it about 10 years ago. Mm. And I, I, at the end of the day, I think I put it down because I just wasn't ready for it. Mm. Um, and oh, when, way too many one-liners there, mate. <laughs> way too many one-liners there. <laughs> the, um, well, and you start managing people. So we've got, a, you know, we've got a great team here. But when you start to, you've got to get on an emotional level with people. And then when you're giving people advice and, you know, you're playing with their lives, right? So people are going to come in here and we're going to potentially recommend buying several properties and get you into millions of dollars of debt and, and you've got to organise your money and all that. It is hard work and, you know, you're talking about, okay, how many children are you going to have? So a bit of marriage counselling in there as well in terms of, or you can't separate your money, it's not going to work planning. for you. A bit of yeah. planning. <laughs> Tell me what two versus three kids looks like. Ooh, Ooh we have two. We have two. Yeah. Those types of things are real, right? You know, and, and we are, you know, we've been entrusted with their responsibility of being their accountability partner. And that's really important, you know, mm. it's not lost on, on us as we do that type of work. Um, and ultimately, you've got to connect emotionally because in all of these things, you're on a trust gauge, right? If, uh, if you trust me, um, I build enough rapport and I can give you ideas, that trust will move up and move up. And then ultimately, you'll talk to me about all your decisions around money and I can give you the walk a mile, see a mile. Mm-hmm. And when you're doing it for thousands of people, it's like, well, we've got a bit of an idea here mm. in terms of how that looks and how it can work. Yeah. And I guess for you guys, it's like, you know, your book costs 25, 30 bucks or whatever it is. Yep. Might take someone 10 hours to read. And then through that, they've got access to your whole career. I mean, I can't think of anything that has a bigger ROI than buying a book and reading it, you know, for 10 hours. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You know, 10 hours is pretty... I would have thought you could knock this one over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we say ten years in a weekend, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but how are you guys going on the on the book reading? Because I've gone into a season of I've got to go into audio books now rather than than book reading. But the, are you you guys avid sort of print readers? Or are you I'm a hundred percent print. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the only times I I've got the Audible subscription. So yeah. once a month, if we've got a mega book coming up, I'll listen. And read at the same time, okay. uh, just to keep me on track, and yeah. so I can still take notes as I go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. cool. Uh, Purists, yeah, same here. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a book a week. It's if you think about it, people on average probably watch about thirteen to sixteen hours of television a week or something. I just pull that number out of my <laughs> ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sounds about right. right. Yeah. 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 Sounded believable. you mentioned that last. Yeah, the last bit. Yeah. 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 I think like, well, you're just going to siphon off maybe half of that. Still watch eight hours of Netflix or something. And eight hours of reading, all of a sudden, you know, if you, you can, if you end up reading a book a week or something, it's unbelievable the, the things you learn and the big changes that might might happen to you. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, you rattled off a book a week, like that's 52 in a year. A lot of people don't get even through 10 in a year, mm-hmm. so um, that's a phenomenal effort for you guys. I was, at, um, I was at about zero a year until we, you know, started taking it a bit more seriously and... Is that what the podcast was, just to get you to actually uh, read a book? Well, I was literally, I <laughs> never read, and then I sort of was coming to the end of uni and starting work and thought, you know, I was listening to podcasts, and I said, I'll oh, read this book, read this book, so I probably read 10, and then mm-hmm. I read 30, and then we got serious, and now it's yeah, locked in yeah. for 50 years. Well, you know, we're in our offices here, but, you know, as on the way out, we'll show you our library. I mean, there's probably, you know, I don't know, 200, 300 books in yeah, the nice. library yeah. in terms of what that looks like, and that's only the stuff we bring from home. Absolutely. I remember it. For me, it was maybe five years ago, I was a pack-a-day smoker mm-hmm. through uni, drinking loads of booze, all yeah. of that, and someone gave me this book, uh, Alan Carr, The Easy Way to Stop Smoking, yeah. and I was a little bit sceptical about what a book can do, and I read that book, and I quit smoking absolutely easily. You know? Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. Just If anyone out there is a smoker, yeah. read this book, and it will change your life completely, um, through no willpower or anything. 
And then, you know, after that, just finding out that, as I said, you know, 30 bucks an eight-hour read or whatever, mm. you know, that's going to turn out to be hundreds of thousands of dollars, years extra lived. Yeah. And then for us, like, you know, after that, I was completely sold on books. And then that's, you know, that's how the book week started. And then mm. we started this podcast and mm. got stuck into it. Well done, gents. Doing a good job. <laughs> Doing a great job. 52 books in a year, Ben. Yeah, no. I, I thought I was uh, an avid consumer, but that's pretty well, good. Because they're not only reading it, they're bloody taking notes. Yes. And no, no, I get it. They have to read it back on the podcast. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah, that's good work. <laughs> so, James, what are, so you mentioned uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Mm-hmm. On our podcast, we normally ask people, what are their favourite books? So you've, you've mentioned Richard, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Seven Habits. Mm-hmm. Is there any other books? Emotional Intelligence. Is there any more you add to this list? Oh, I still haven't finished that one, so I probably, <laughs> I probably can't claim that one. Um, <laughs> we use a lot of uh, personality profiling in the work that we do here for our, for our um, staff selection. So we build a culture of like-minded people. Or, mm. you know, Jim Collins has got a couple of great books. Obviously, Good to Great was the first one. Level 5 Management, Built mm. to Last, those types of books. But he also talked about, you know, the concept of the right person on the bus in the right seat on the bus. So we've used that emotional intelligence piece to work out the types of people that we want in our business to help cultivate. You know, that's the biggest challenge for Bryce and I is that we can't see everyone. Mm. Um, You know, so we've been able to sort of replicate ourselves in, in the people that we develop internally to be able to serve more people to change their lives. Yeah. Awesome. Any extras to add to the list? Yeah, for me, um, I'm fascinated by business. So the personal MBA by Josh Kaufman just just synthesised business down mm, into nice. wonderful, wonderful frameworks and just every business is just five things, right? That was just transformational. And then, um, uh, you know, clearly Seven Habits, but um, yep. there's another book that um, in the last 12 months has had an enormous impact on me and that's um, uh, uh, comp- uh, Elegantly Simple Solutions to Complex People Problems. That sounds good. And it's um, it, it just the long story short. It just says that we we are the storyteller in our life, right? So we are not just the actor in our life. We are the storyteller. We write the script. And you talked about before. Um, I don't know what the book says in terms of not needing the willpower for um, changing smoking, but it really just breaks down a couple of simple frameworks for you to lock in and just go, okay, well I'm in control of how I respond to this, um, and. Uh, human behaviour actually isn't that complex at all, although we all think that we've got these wonderfully complex problems that no one would ever understand, but um, it, it doesn't. So it's been that's been transformational on a personal development level and then clearly those other books that you wrote off. But the personal MBR, I reckon, if anyone, if anyone is interested in investing or business, to me that's, a, that's just... It's not only a great book, it's just a reference book that you pull up. Mm. You guys have checked it out, I think. I've got it on my bookshelf. I haven't read it yet, yeah. actually. Yeah, it's um, epic. Yeah, yeah, you'll love it. Definitely on the list. Yeah. Um, so if anyone out there wants to find out more about your uh, podcast and what you guys do at Empower Wealth, uh, where should they go? Yeah, well, every Thursday at 3 p.m. we release a, a new podcast with a mix of Ben and I chatting and some interviews with experts around the country. So if you go to thepropertycouch.com.au, um, there's a few free downloads that you can get there. Um, but also if you just go to iTunes or your favourite podcaster uh, for Android, um, and then the business man. Oh, yeah, it's just the Empower Wealth, which is empowerwealth.com.au, pretty simple. Mm. And I've noticed you guys don't really plug that much on your podcast. No, no, no we don't normally talk about our business very much. The, the idea, right, is that um, if, if someone comes on, um, you know, I don't know, from your example, imagine two minutes in, you go, oh, um, 
buy my book-related service or product, and then and then two minutes later, buy my book-related, and people just get tired of that, right? So we we just wanted to. Um, the 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 intention of the podcast was really simple. Ben and I were in the halls of our business going. Uh, there's another one just got done. Another one just got stung. So we thought we'd push record. We had no idea what this podcast world was going to be like. Uh, the, you know, we've we've got a, a producer, Ivis. She helps us, and we um, we get that content out every week. And it's been by far the greatest um, professional joy. I'm speaking for Ben, but I think I know his answer in terms of the the people that come up to us and say, "Hey, look, it's made a difference. It's transformed my thinking. It's transformed how I've set up my." my personal life and yeah that's a real joy and a privilege to be able to do that.